Well, what do you know? It's time again for another Disco Posse podcast. Thank you all for listening and for watching. In fact, we've got a lot of really great stuff. I'm moving more effort into the video side of the channel, so please do go check out youtube.com forward slash Disco Posse. Easy enough to find the episodes all over there. They're running a little bit off to the normal production rate because we do a little bit extra work. So make sure you do check out the Spotify. Uh, we're on Stitcher. We're on iTunes. We're on Amazon. We're on Audible. We're even on iHeartRadio. We're all over the place. So please do check it out. And while you're there, since you're surfing the web, make sure you go to support all of our amazing vendors that make this podcast happen, including Veeam Software. So if you're in the business of anything you run in IT, any of your systems, hey, look, you need to protect your data. So make sure you get everything you need for your data protection needs, whether it's in the cloud, on-premises, even cloud native and fantastic stuff like Kubernetes. That's right. Even though you thought it was completely ephemeral, you need to back that thing up. SaaS, Teams, you name it, Office 365. You think it's protected just because it's in the cloud? No, that's just where it's living. But guess what? When it's gone, it's gone. Unless you're running Veeam. So go to vee.am forward slash Disco Posse. Show them some love and they'll show you data protection like you've never seen before. Whether it's in the enterprise or the SMB. Anyways, let's get to the next part because we've launched a brand new coffee brand. Holy heck, that's amazing. If you want to check out everything we're doing around this, go to diabolicalcoffee.com. You can even see it in the background of some of the videos which showing up and we are very, very proud. I'm the co-founder of this. It's a community effort. We actually built this because we've been giving back to the community through coffee exchanges for now four years. So we finally decided to pull it together and build our own brand. We've got our own roaster. We've got an amazing set of t-shirts, hoodies, mugs, you name it. So go to diabolicalcoffee.com. And if you want to save a couple of bucks, make sure you put in Disco Posse in the checkout and you'll get a special little discount to let them know you came from here. All right, we're going to talk to Leon Cooperman. Leon is from Cast.ai. Leon's amazing. He talks about a ton of stuff. We talk about starting a business, the importance of, of compliance, uh, being an enterprise, his history in the industry. We talk about Cast.ai and the problem around Kubernetes operations in day two. So cool. Thank you, Leon, for a great conversation. With that, let's check it out. My name is Leon Cooperman. I'm the co-founder and CTO of Cast.ai, and you are listening to the Disco Posse podcast. And and with that we jump right in, uh, which is which is fun. So Leon, thank you very much for for joining today. I I always enjoy when I can look at folks who uh, I've seen, you know, uh, faces and names in in the community. And it was cool when I saw the opportunity for us to chat. And so I'm, I'm glad that we got a chance to get connected. Uh, so I think for folks that aren't already familiar with Cast AI and, and yourself, if you want to do a quick introduction, and then we'll kind of dive into first where Cast AI is going and, and a lot of the history as well of your own personal history, you got some some really neat background that brought you to where you are today. Eric, yeah, very nice to meet you. Thanks for uh, thanks for having me on. This is going to be really fun. Uh, so uh, I'll start with Cast. So Cast is a, a fairly young company. We're uh, early stage uh, startup. Uh, we're focusing on 
a really specific, what I feel is a very specific industry problem. And if I could describe the, at a higher level, the industry problem that we're focusing on is when you as a customer uh, decide to migrate your applications or your life to the cloud, so to speak, your general first step is you have to pick a cloud provider. You're picking it AWS or Google or Azure or Oracle or IBM. And that first decision is a very critical decision in your life cycle because it impacts basically right now the rest of your life kind of in the cloud sphere. And what I mean by that is you very quickly start to consume over-the-top path services from those clouds. You consume RDS, for example, or BigQuery or SageMaker. And those APIs, those SDKs, those CLIs, all of that ecosystem becomes native to your DevOps environment almost for life. Um, and you find yourself, uh, if you ever have to move your application anywhere else, it becomes a really big deal. So we, we call this problem vendor lock-in. Uh, a lot of people talk about it and they talk about kind of the multi-cloud universe as a myth, like, oh, how are you ever going to get an application to run just as seamlessly in one cloud as the other, or in our case, in both clouds simultaneously, which seems like even more of, of uh, magic. Um, so we started the company with this mission of preventing vendor lock-in. So how could we get customers in the place where they have choice? And what what is the purpose of choice? Really, We really see it as three things. The first one is when you're not beholden to one specific vendor, you have more flexibility with what you pay that cloud, right? So if there are financial options for moving your workloads to places where they're more cost-effective, you can do that. The second real benefit that we find is what I call 10xing your DevOps. Or if, if I was to put it another way, if you have to learn a lot of low-level SDKs and, and tool sets, it's going to be very hard for you to pick up that skill set and move it from AWS to uh, Google. So what we're finding is the with the adoption of cloud-native tools like Kubernetes, it's much easier to speak to the cloud at a higher level. So you can speak to the cloud using kubectl and all of those surrounding tools versus having to understand the low level nitty gritty of infrastructure. And that and DevOps engineers are the rarest resource. Engineering in general is something that we're all constrained with. So the more we can do with the people that we have through automation, the better we're all off going to be as an industry. And, and the final one is one that is actually evidence that happened kind of almost too soon in our lifetime, which is uh, there is failure in cloud all of the time. Uh, we saw a huge one in November on AWS, and then we followed that up with a big one after that in Google. It was, and we had nothing to do with it, obviously, but it just showed the uh, the almost fragile environment we run in. Right, even services in these clouds that are multi-regional, meaning they have the entire stack in US East, an entire stack in US West still have dependencies across, like I am as an example. And so we really felt the need, how can we take a customer's workload and make it independent of any one single cloud so that if one of those clouds fails, their application continues to run. And so those are the core three missions, right? And they, their surrounding kind of thread in, in our company uh, is the use of automation specifically over uh, Kubernetes implementation. So we, we don't work with customers today that are not Kubernetes customers or aren't haven't adopted uh, container uh, as a strategy. But if you are in that kind of sphere, there's a possibility for automation to help with all of those three pain points and benefits.
you when you've you've really come up with a first of all really three strong value propositions right and especially like you said clouds go down they suffer outages unfortunately as is difficult to be a pr person for a cloud company you know you kind of got to say yeah yeah that's, that's that, that happens <laughs> it's it's in the terms of service it's in the shared responsibility model we've sort of laid bare that this is the thing i i sort of i joked one time and I was coming to Las Vegas for reInvent and somebody asked me, they said, oh, you know, do you come here often? They're like, oh yeah, I, I come here all the time. I was there for reInvent, you know, but I go there for VMworld and all these different things back when we traveled for events. And he says, do you gamble much? I said, yeah, I run all my prod in US East One. <laughs> I don't think he got the joke as much as the other nerds in the line around me did, but like, unfortunately we leverage, we don't leverage the deployment patterns and that are available to us quite often. And this is why I was really digging in on, on the capabilities that you and the team are bringing because it immediately takes you to like, this is the first, first principle of deployment should be based on using the right deployment patterns that protect you potentially from, from that kind of a situation. Yeah. US East one AZ, like one AZ. That's like, right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, always in one A. Always in one A. Yeah. <laughs> that that I I'm trying to imagine what like a heat map of workloads in in the AWS environment, and it would just be just like steaming red hot over US East one, you know, in in one A. It's it's because what's it like? A, they almost should make it like a rotating default for the first deployment, just so that you don't know where it is. It goes like a slot machine and just like drops your workload there. Interestingly, I don't remember if it was GKE or uh, EKS that does this, but when you create a cluster in one of those environments, I think it randomizes the uh, the nodes. It randomizes your VPC, like it says, "Oh, you should be in these. Oh, neat, pick, yeah. pick out of these six availability zones, pick three. Yeah. Um, and it and it and it looked random to me. I did it a while ago, but I think you're right. There, there is a first of all. There's just a scarcity of resources. Like if you're putting everything into one AZ, I'm pretty sure these machines are physically partitioned, right? There is an incentive for clouds to distribute some of that work. You don't need to be running hot in yeah. in, in one zone, right? Well, and the we've got the unfortunate problem, and and I'd love to dive in with you in this one that there's the lock-in and multi-cloud are two really challenging phrases uh, or descriptors in that how we thought it was going to go and how it actually goes are different. And I remembered when I was at reInvent, I forget which one it was, like 17 or 16, where it was a while back. And, and Andy Jassy said on stage, he says, we are very proud of what we're doing and whatever the whole you know, value and, and of us as being customer centric. And we, we give you the ability to do all this stuff with this ubiquitous available infrastructure without any legal lock-in. And I was like, Sorry, hang on a second. He just said legal lock-in. And he's like, ultimately, that's what it is, right? So they have no, you've no reason to stay. You've no contractual obligation to stay. You can just pick up your workloads and move. But what we know is, of course, they run opinionated infrastructure as any cloud provider does. And like you said, you're going to make a choice architecturally that's going to bind you to that provider because unless you want to build the right, if, if you want to hire engineers to build all these crazy abstractions, then then you're building things that are not actually solving customer problems for you, right? It's it's taking people and engineering the wrong layers. Yeah, 
Absolutely. And then I guess, uh, and the other thing as well, beyond the lock-in was the idea of portability and multi-cloud. And while really true, like multi-cloud single applications are rare, the portability aspect is an advantage that you have a protection, right? It's effectively giving you an out if there were a situation and you needed to bring a workload across or bring an application load across, then you now can do it versus, and that's if you don't architect towards that pattern from the start, very hard uh, to back into a, a multi-cloud deployment. So I, I look at it as a continuum, Eric. So what I mean, are all customers going to get to multi-cloud tomorrow? Absolutely not. You know, we're, 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 we talk about it in very futuristic terms, but my goal here is to give customers a roadmap to get there, right? So out of those three buckets of benefits, which uh, through automation um, and, and K8s, which ones can you take care of immediately? And which ones can you set yourself up for in the future? And I'll, and I'll give you an example, right? So go, let's go back to your example of when I first enter a cloud environment and let's say I'm choosing AWS, I can make certain architectural choices, right? So for example, I could use an RDS database that uses Postgres as the dialect. So I could use Postgres RDS. Cool, I have a path to use Postgres elsewhere if I choose, right? I've chosen an open source standard right. that gives me some flexibility. Now, what if I decide that the document DB or document DB is a more important element of my infrastructure? So I go in all in on Dynamo. Dynamo gives me a, a lot of great things. Where am I going to get Dynamo if I leave AWS? Never mind if I want to go to another cloud. What if I just want to move that application as an instance on-prem? I can't, I can't do that today. So there are a lot of innovative companies that are coming up around as point solutions for just these hard portability problems, right? Um, Lambda is another great example. Lambda is by far and away the largest uh, provider of function as a service, right? And this is the one of the ones that I actually have my eye on. I think we have a real opportunity for disruption here because I don't want to get customers to change their Lambda behavior. I mean, they've already written too much code for that. So I, I find that there's one of two patterns. Either a customer is adopting an open source uh, data plane standard like, like Postgres, you know, wire protocol, cool. Um, plenty of databases will support that. Or a customer is using uh, API set that has become so ubiquitously standard for the function that it becomes the de facto standard. And I'll give you an example there. S3 is a great example of that because who would build a different object storage interface today knowing that all of these applications have been written for S3? So you have companies like Wasabi and Backblaze that they said, look, we will give you the exact same interface. You have to change no lines of code to get right. to data plane compatibility, um, but, you, but we're gonna give you a cheaper, more available, whatever differentiated offering on the other side. So I think that's like, you have to have one of those outs. You either have to have an open source out or you have to have an out that says, the industry has adopted the standard. And unfortunately, some of those cloud standards are open source, some are very proprietary. Yeah, and, it, and in fact, it probably one of the more challenging situations we've seen recently was where you know a large provider uh, AWS decides to take an open project 
and then build a an enterprise grade sort of service level around it and in thus they fork the project they choose to open source that they put people behind it and you end up with a really a challenging situation i i don't know it's not right it's not wrong it's not good or bad it is just challenging because it brings people to a crossroads where they have to make the decision you know am i i'm using it i get the same api i get the same front end i don't have to change my stuff but now i have this reliable scalable infrastructure if you're a a, a real purist on the open source side <clears throat> now you're in a quandary because of course you're saying well amazon is as creating a commercial and proprietary offering they're like but they're open sourcing it I, so it's I, I don't want to pull us into that rabbit hole just yet, but it, that's a great example like you talked about of, you know, if I'm going to choose an object storage environment, just as if I'm going to choose a serverless, you know, FAS environment, let's be honest, when we say serverless, the first thing that comes into anybody's mind is Lambda. <laughs> and, and, and then you're looking for number two in your head, right? And it's, it's even hard to come up with. And, and, uh, just just a point on that open source piece because I'm pretty passionate about this. I think the whole tragedy there is is that like if we're talking about let's use Elasticsearch as an example, they went and they changed their license model and they changed right. it in not a good way for the industry. Right, like there were times where predominantly open source projects were copyleft licenses, meaning GPL, Mozilla, not great licenses. They weren't great licenses because it was hard to adopt that software in a conversion in a commercial environment without your lawyers coming down on you and saying, you got to get that out of your code base, which is yeah. not going to fly. So the whole rise of MIT, Apache to all of the, what I'll call the more free, free to express yourself licenses led to vast adoption, right? And there have been a couple of great examples in the industries of companies that have adopted a great license model and have thrived and probably arguably better technology that have adopted a worse license model and have not seen their full potential. I'm, I'm not gonna, we're not gonna name any names, but to think this whole sad part of the, of this kind of saga was the fact that it forced Elasticsearch, a smaller company to protect themselves from the giant by, uh, by changing their license model. And it's not the first one, like a couple of uh, pro projects have followed suit. Yeah, yeah, and it's good actually. And thank you for actually jumping a bit further into that. I, I, I didn't. I'm glad you actually have coverage on that. And that's one of the things too, like the you know the SSPL versus and the AGPLs. Like, there's a lot of different license options, and and that was tough. And more so was the the reaction. The reaction was worse than the action, and and then it ends up you end up with these sort of PR firms that are effectively having to create press releases saying that. You know, look, we didn't do the wrong thing. So we're like, it's it's a it's a sad situation that, and it left, you know, now the open elastic folks, you know, uh, or like open source elastic search folks kind of struggling going, oh, you know, now I have to choose, you know, which parent I get to go celebrate Christmas with in a divorced family. It's a tough thing that they're like, do I go all my infrastructure on AWS? Should I just move over to, uh, you know, open elastic or whatever, whatever their choice is going to be. Right. So it's, it's it, and who loses in the end, it's, it's the end user, right? the, the folks consuming the technology ultimately lose in this equation. Yeah. My friend, uh, Rob Hirschfeld, we, we did a whole sort of long run on, uh, you know, at the time I think it was chef ran into a similar situation. There's a few other folks that have done, 
and uh, we called it open source closed minds. And it was a real tough thing because what you found is they weren't trying to create a better future. They were trying to stop a better future for a, a competitor in their minds. Yeah. And, and, and like you said, the impact is on the, on the community and, and the consumers. So, but Hey, let's get back to, let's get to happier topics. Um, <laughs> so, so Cassie, I, I like, you've got some really cool, my favorite thing is bold statements. And I, you know, you go to the website and immediately I'm like, cut 50% of my bill. All right. You had me at cut 50% of my bill. You had me at 10X, the power of DevOps. And it's neat, like when you get those big, bold statements, I imagine obviously it, it piques everybody's interest as it should. And when they get to that, the 10X DevOps is one that I'd love to dive into because I think a lot of people will hear that and they're like, oh yeah, you know, marketing phrases. Uh, I know. I mean, look, I'm in product marketing. I'm a technology evangelist. I do this stuff all the time myself. But let's dive into what what does 10x of DevOps ultimately mean in in the Cast AI story? Yeah. So it starts with the argument, like, what do you as an engineer need to know to do your job effectively, right? And the less automation there is in your environment, the more you need to know. The, the, so, like, if you go back back, let's go back 20 years, right, or more. When you started coding as an engineer, when there wasn't very much around, there was no cloud, you, you, it's all the way back, you'd start in assembly language and then there was an abstraction from assembly language to C and there were a lot of good C programmers, but then there was an abstraction of C to Python or Java and you have to get, and you went further and further away from the machine. Well, why isn't that true for infrastructure as, as code or infrastructure as service? Uh, why, like when I write a Terraform script, I have to be very, very specific. I need this machine on this VPC with this subnet. Like you're abstracting away the APIs, but you're not abstracting away the gory detail of the of the infrastructure you're putting up. A couple things. One, it makes it, it's hard to test when there's that much detail in infrastructure's code. But secondly, we don't believe that engineers need to know all of that stuff. If it's and in fact, it's less secure. So you get all of your drift when all of the hard rooted configurations are, are in these types of Chef, Ansible, Terraform, all of, these, all of this scripting allows for a lot of configuration drift. So our principle is, what if we step back and let the customer describe their infrastructure in very uh, high, in higher level terms and abstract the terms? I would like a Kubernetes cluster. I would like to, to have these resilience properties. In other words, I'd like to have uh, three masters for resilience. I'd like those three masters to be distributed in different regions or clouds, whatever the choice is. These are the clouds that I'd like to use. This is the networking fabric that I'd like to use. Um, and here are my cloud credentials. So now I've just described a very high level cluster. Uh, I've let CAST do the orchestration work. At the end of the day, the, the objects, the resources that get created in the cloud are exactly what I would have done if I did it with a low-level CLI. But I have had to describe none of that gore. And what ends up in the account or in the tenancy is secure best practice environments that have gone through all of that kind of pre-testing of, the, of uh, the cluster kind of in a, in a sandbox and have been certified to be robust, secure, reliable, and all the rest of it. So, how much time have I said, like if I asked you to set up a Kates cluster from scratch, right now using a managed service, um, using a very specific high availability topology, that might take you days or weeks, even using some pre-configured templates, 
we've got it down to about four and a half minutes across two clouds, about eight minutes across three clouds. Single cloud, under four minutes. Highly ephemeral, highly effective. You can throw them into your CI/CD pipeline, spin them up, shut them down, and it just becomes part of the flow. That's what I mean by 10X. I mean, you don't have to think about the low level details. All best practices are coded for you. Your infrastructure template is as simple as it can get. And it, it's as we you know, often hear the jokes and people describe them. Says so you're a Kubernetes, you know, developer. You're like, ask. Ah, so you're a YAML engineer. <laughs> but in effect, you know, that's we say it as a almost like a pejorative. Like, oh yeah, oh goodness gracious, you're you're stuck, you know, doing YAML. But the truth is, it's not the fact that you're using YAML. It's the fact that what you have to describe in the YAML. That's the like you said, I like that with, you know, we can do it without the gore, you know, having to to be overly descriptive in in those lower layers. Yeah, I like the idea that you've got moved the abstraction to the right layer, which is really where it needs to be. It's not that, like you said, you don't necessarily have to be running like a spinnaker style of across three clouds, completely agnostic, but it's like just run it for your one cloud, but get rid of the the unfortunate underlay descriptions that you have to build in every single one of your configurations. And by the way, you can describe, no one does this, but you can describe your uh, Kubernetes objects in JSON. There is a flag for that. Yeah. No, no, <laughs> yeah. One, uses it. no one uses it. Um, so just to go back to your, uh, just to go back to your point, Eric, the one thing I missed there is like the, the ongoing automation part. So like once you've created your cluster, there's obviously a lot of work to keep it updated, managed, upgraded, patched, and so forth. Well, if those concerns are removed out of your kind of daily flow, if patching happens automatically, if upgrades happen automatically on, on a trigger, but, but you don't have to describe those um, in a lot of code, it's certainly helpful. The other piece is the data plane. Now, that's one thing that I think we're very strong with that we haven't talked about. You know, Kubernetes is set up it's got a couple of peculiarities, right? And I wasn't an early contributor to the project, so I, I can only I can only listen and guess about some of the motivation. But um, one of the things that it does in an interesting way is it, it's a very fair platform. So what I mean by that is, given the resources that you have in the data plane, the, the nodes that you have in the data plane, it will try to distribute work as fairly as possible. From our perspective, that's a terrible property. I don't want fair. I want greedy scheduling, right? I want I want to pack as much work as I can, assuming that the work is described correctly, like that it's not thrashing. But if the, the work is described correctly, I want to pack it all into as few pieces of infrastructure as possible, taking into consideration some high availability um, goals that I might have. That's kind of like the one piece. And the second piece is most customers um, do a, a pretty poor job with the auto-scaling tools that are already available in various clouds. And I'll explain why. Every cloud, like Kubernetes is in an unfortunate situation that, that there's a different solution for every cloud out there. Like if you're going to scale on GCP, you're going to node scaling, you're going to do it differently than you do it on AWS, and you're going to do it differently on Azure. So there's just no single dialect for describing how to scale the resources that you need. The, so most people, what they do is they over-provision their cluster. And this is a real fact. Like, most K8's clusters are highly over-provisioned, either because they're highly described, like their resource requirements at the pod level or the deployment level are over overdone, or because the guy that 
is going to get woken up in the middle of the night doesn't want to get woken up. You know? <laughs> That's like, right. the real <laughs> I just want to have two X the machines and someone else is going to take care of that bill. Right? And because engineers are typically divorced from the bill in today's world, which is something that's going to change over time. Um, it's all too easy to over-provision infrastructure. So unless you have automation that addresses all of those things, it's just it's that, that problem is not going to go away. Yeah, when it brings to the other thing of, uh, you know, cloud being ephemeral, and, and I bump into this oftentimes, I ran this a lot as early work that I did with Terraform, I would, you know, neatly describe my cloud infrastructure, stand up like a bunch of IaaS stuff, and I would deploy it out there, and, and I would run it for a while, and then things start to be problematic because what would happen at some point there's changes in the underlay and it's fine it's completely transparent and obscured from my workload however it's not obscured from my drift management and my state management which at the time you know terraform was a little less than friendly and and how it go back and recheck for for changes and, and integrate them in so then i would find suddenly my workloads were were respawning you know, for no real good reason, other than like we had something host changed application, re, re, it came back up, life was good. And then Terraform tore it all down to the ground and then rebuilt it again because of one change in state. <laughs> yeah. So uh, on the state management side, this is where I'd love to dig in. Like, how do you handle underlay state changes as part of the, the cast AI abstraction? So that's a great question. Again, like the 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 example you gave is all too close. So from look, when we were building early prototypes, did, did we use Terraform? Absolutely. It was just like so brutally easy to do. The team went away from it pretty quickly. Actually, I was pretty opposed to uh, moving away from handling kind of. So the problem, so our perceived problem with Terraform is is that state is exists on the client side wherever you run the Terraform script and provider from, that's where your state file exists, right? So if you have drift in the cloud, um, the diff tools, you're right, the diff tools were certainly not there um, and, they, and they're probably still pretty lacking. So we went away from Terraform pretty quickly and what the underlying architecture, what we decided to do was, look, the cloud tenancy should be the database of record, meaning we should have as little state as possible we just need to have the bare minimum state, desired state on our side as possible. And then as we provision, we should be querying the cloud, almost like a database, right? Like give me all instances, instances that have these tags that are responsible for this work. So if we get the latest state from the cloud and we compare that to desired, it's very easy for us to heal or auto heal. So in a cast, I'll give you a couple of examples. If you go and delete a load balancer in an instance in your tenancy by accident, CAS will recognize that within a couple of minutes and just recreate those for you. If you modify it, it will understand the configuration change and revert the change back. So it's, it, 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 there is going to, always going to be an interaction with customers and meddling with their own infrastructure. We just have to understand how to heal it uh, efficiently and without downtime. And, and that's the way we've built our provisioning module uh, from early Terraform experiments, this is kind of the pattern we got to. You know, and I mean, resilience is one of the important patterns that you describe, and 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 it's it's part of what we need to do is not just be able to do it, but do it in a fashion that ensures resiliency and availability, which is 
really, you know, what, what, what the main goal of the application, uh, you know, capabilities are, uh, and, you know, let's leverage ephemeral infrastructure, but let's not have the application availability be ephemeral. Let's make sure that we architect accordingly and, and look for the, that drift change. And it's, it's funny when he describes the, you know, the challenge of, of those underlays and, and state management. The other thing that I've, if anybody's tried Elastic Beanstalk, again, I'm big friends with a lot of people at AWS, love, I use a ton of AWS infrastructure myself. And the, the first time I stood up in Elastic Beanstalk, you know, just to really dabble around, I think I spent the next 22 days trying to get rid of it because it was like a, it was like playing whack-a-mole because it had its own sort of internals around state management and continuous fill. And if you didn't tear it down in the right order, it would just continuously respawn all these different infrastructure bits. And this is why, you know, like I said, I appreciated what what your what Cast AI is is aiming at is like you can handle the whack-a-mole problem of the infrastructure. And like I said, get me out of the business of doing that. All I wanted to do was put a bloody Ruby on Rails app into Elastic Beanstalk. And I spent a month doing infrastructure lessons and provisioning. Yeah. And and part of that is because Beanstalk is so integrated with the platform, like you haven't spent the time to necessarily create the right IAM permissions for the role that's doing the Beanstalk work for you. Like, so with Cast, it's very clear cut. Like you have to create a service account or, a, or an IAM principle to, to allow Cast to do its work. So if you no longer want Cast to do its work, you can, you can go in to our API or console and say, delete cluster or disengage, or you can just go change your IAM and say, this, this user no longer has access and that infrastructure is left alone forever and continues to run, which is, by the way, one of our founding principles. Like, I don't, I don't want to solve a vendor lock-in problem by creating more vendor lock-in. <laughs> yeah. like, oh, moving vendor lock-in to the left, right? <laughs> yeah, I, you don't no longer beholden to AWS or Google, but oh, guess what? You have to use my service forever. No, no. Like we, like we promise two principles here. One, uh, we are going to open source all of the components that run inside of a cluster. So, like. Our CSI driver will be open source. Um, anything that runs as a controller uh, or a daemon set inside will be open source. Um, and then the second principle is you can cut the cord at any time. The cluster may not continue to have the cost intelligence or the automatic moving between clouds, but whatever you leave will continue to work uh, without a hiccup. The other thing that was neat when I looked at the timeline on on the on the the team and the platform, it was uh, one thing that jumped out at me right away was ISO certification uh, heading into twenty one there, and and this it really it hit me right away of like oh wow it's you know whereas most folks are just like look we're trying to solve a pure technology problem it when I see that it really feels like your team is very acutely aware that you have to solve compliance and availability for that enterprise using technology, but it, it you you really went right ahead into like, look, we can maintain the certification. And I'm just curious sort of what was the the choice and reason to to move there fast and and what's the benefit in in why you've chosen to do that? So you have to understand our go-to-market strategy a little bit, right? It's, it's and it's it's a little bit different than other SaaS providers. So usually a SaaS provider will pick an entry point. So there'll be an SMB SaaS provider. My offering is whatever twenty bucks a month, and I will continue to gain customers and own that market. Or 
I'm an enterprise sales customer, so you're going to get a demo link when you sign up and the platform isn't going to be available and pricing is a negotiation, right? Um, it, based on the founder's backgrounds, like we had very good connections kind of on the enterprise sales side. We didn't want the, but we knew that adoption of our tool set, whether for any of those three benefits would really depend on whether engineers were calling bullshit or not. Pardon the French. Yeah. So, <laughs> um, so we, we, we very consciously have created uh, robust documentation, very strong um, API set, everything is, we want the developer to understand that this is a developer friendly platform. And if they, and if we're selling to the enterprise, the CFO or the CTO or VP of engineering, when we, when that platform gets introduced to the engineering team, hopefully one of two things happens. I've heard of these guys, super cool. I've tried it because they have like a, you know, like the, the, there's an entry edition that doesn't cost any money. Um, and, or if they haven't heard of us, they say, oh, I've looked at the platform. It's transparent. The documentation is all there. This is an engineering group that I can relate to. So rather than coming bottom up or top down, we're triangulating the strategy, right? Both groups of people are extremely important. And so just to circle back to your question, why is ISO important? We do, we are taught just by nature of our backgrounds and, and the folks that we've dealt with in the past, we have a lot of enterprise relationships and our early, even our early product market fit customers were like, dude, we're not going to adopt this technology unless you have very uh, strong compliance in place because you have the keys to the kingdom. So what are you going to do from an ISO perspective, SOC 2 type 2? We've had FedRAMP requirements. I'm like, guys, you know, we'll do one at a time. So our immediate goal is uh, ISO, SOC 2 type 2 for security, and then we'll probably expand the compliance platform for there. And it, it, Eric, we do come from a cybersecurity kind of like life prior to CAST. So this is not a, a, a like a shot, like we're not being dropped into a bucket of cold water here. We understand what it takes to, to get to a reasonable level of compliance. It went, it's, but the funny thing is that it's, it is a bit of a rarity in that you saw that that was a requirement to, to gain the audience and to do that as a go-to-market strategy, whereas a lot of folks are like, they, they will live solely. I mean, like go to KubeCon. How many of those booths do you see that, you know, fantastic engineers, fantastic people, they're really, really solving a pure technical problem. And then when they go to do an enterprise sale, that's when the struggles begin. And obviously a lot of those you'll see they ultimately become, you know, they, they get bought by larger organizations, the Cisco's and the Dell's and, and VMware's of the world and such. Um, but yeah, the fact that you had that at the outset, it shows me that sort of the, the length and the belief in the platform and the company that you are ultimately building for a very strong enterprise good market strategy versus like, we're just, Let's just see if this works <laughs> and and then hopefully we can kind of grow from there. So I like the the mindfulness of of the the business responsibility you have. It, you know, the that the debate minimal viable product versus not like the the emphasis should be on viable, not on minimum, right? Like <laughs> I think right. but a bunch of Amazon guys just wrote a good book called uh, Working Backwards, which I I I can't wait to pick up. It looks like a fantastic read. I just bought the audiobook yesterday. I haven't started listening to it, but yeah, I saw that. I was like, I must get this one. <laughs> yeah. And and in 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 the podcast I was listening to, I think it was the uh, A16Z podcast the, where the authors were were interviewed on. 
they, they, they kind of uh, talked about this point at, at AWS where, you know, that between that six pager that got it kind of accepted by the business, it sometimes it was a multi-month thinking process, right? And you would go back and deliberate until you got to a very thoughtful place for what fit you would actually, what need you would actually fit in the market. And along the way, you would deal with things like compliance and security and what's the business model and how are they, people are going to pay for it and so forth. So we, just to your point, Eric, we do believe in kind of a lean approach. Like I'm not going to build features without very constant stream of user feedback. But at the same time, I, I, I do want to look toward the future to make sure that when we get to our final vision, all the underpinnings are, are there for growth, not just a great product. And one of those really critical underpinnings, which I think my team of young engineers was pretty surprised by, was operational posture, right? So yeah. before we even released an, uh, a beta product, I'm like, all right, guys, what are we doing to make sure that this platform is up 24 uh, seven? What is our operational life going to look like? Are we on call? And by the way, for European engineers, which is where our team is, it's a very unusual ask. Like I think American engineers are used to this 24 seven rotation and someone's on call all the time. Not so much in Europe, right? So we kind of uh, introduced that very Seattle-based approach to uh, on-call process uh, into CAS very early on. And I think it's worked out quite well because now we're at the point when we're onboarding customers, we know how to respond to operational incidents. And what gives customers the best possible confidence is like, okay, everyone makes mistakes for sure, but you guys are professional enough to acknowledge the issue within five minutes, you know, open up a bridge, get communication, like all of those things are already, you know, there's already process in place to handle operations at enterprise scale. Yeah, making making your engineers SREs because you're effectively going to sell and and evangelize to SREs. If you don't live the lifestyle yourself, it's going to be tough to relay that story and the importance and when you have that customer. Now, as a technical champion, I mean, ultimately you're your buyer is not the SRE, but, and also then important why the ISOs and, and the certifications and the SOC, you know, like that's, that's important. And, and looking at your own background too, you know, Leon, you, you, you know, compliance quite well. That's been kind of in your DNA for, for quite a while. Was that, uh, I'm always curious, does that, so the choice you made, cause it's an area of interest or did you just sort of happen upon we're going to solve a PCI problem, and and I'm going to, and that became ultimately a a very strong part of of other technologies you built since then. Yeah. Uh, so so we back in the day, geez, I mean, it was probably more than 15 or 18 years ago. So we had this very early SaaS e-commerce business that we were building um, in Toronto, and one of our biggest technical headaches was PCI. Like we could. You know, we 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 got we onboarded some very large customers, and PCI was still a very watery kind of nebulous standard. Like there wasn't a here's a schedule, the you know here's a type A, here's a type B, here's a type C, um, here's the process you go through. It was very nebulous, and so there were a lot of compensating controls. And we found most of our time uh, instead of building kind of the e-commerce engine, we spent figuring out how to make payment processing secure, and that was just a huge piece of overhead. So was credit card uh, 
processing in itself, something I was super passionate about, only from the perspective that it was the massive pain for customers, right? Like yeah. you know, the encryption problem was difficult. The difficulty of understanding how to hold secrets in a way that if you were compromised, your customers wouldn't be compromised. These, all, all of that, that critical thinking left from first principles led us to kind of this uh, uh, compliance company called Hosted PCI that we started many years ago, which is still doing fantastic. Um, but it also gave me that keen interest in cybersecurity, which kind of moved me on through the rest of my career. But it, the funny thing is, as I look back over your own history, like we probably have bumped into each other at some point in time through some technology community because uh, I actually was, I was roaming around York University around the time you were uh, hanging around on the behavioral psychology side of the the, the campus. Uh, and and I was, I'm a Toronto, Torontonian by uh, by birth, uh, only recent uh, move mover to the US. But uh, it was funny. And I look at like your own, you know, Cujo's and, and the other folk, other uh, companies that you had in the past. And it's really neat. I said, the small world of technology, which is why it's ultimately important too when we look to you know what we're doing now and the teams we build with you know those teams often outlive the companies that we're at you know not just the people and it's it's really when you go to that next company it's really cool when you go and you say hey we've got this founding team and they're starting something new and you immediately just get on the bus with them you have no question because you're like all right we've done this before we can do this again and i'm excited by the trust that i have in this team to be able to know that we can solve these complex problems and deal with resolution, which is also another sort of Amazon principle. It's not just how it goes great when it goes great, but how do you effectively deal with resolution and making difficult decisions, especially as a business, you know, versus some founders would struggle for, you know, in an ivory tower, do we go the route of, you know, aiming for certification? Do we just solve this technical problem? Do we sell to big bank? Like it's, you can get paralysis in a business if they don't know how to deal with and say, okay, this is the path we have to choose. We're going to start down this road. This is our next quarter kind of thing. Yeah. And it's interesting, Eric, we knew like, you know, when, when our founding, the first time I think we worked together uh, in many companies previously, we had no idea. Like I look back at it and I'm like, oh my, I feel deep empathy for our early investors in early <laughs> companies, even though they did well. I'm like, wow, that's that was a huge leap of faith. And one of the things like when you, as, as founders that have kind of gone through the cycle multiple times, like they either get much more passionate about their space, um, but they've certainly learned from their mistakes. You just can't survive three or four companies without having lived all of the scars. Yeah. And you you understand those those paths quite well, um, but also one of the things that I'm really thankful for about Cast is we have an opportunity to because we've done these things in the past we really have an opportunity to do a couple of things we can build the business strategically to really have the biggest impact for the industry like it's not it's not necessarily personal goals first anymore it's more about how do we impact the industry for the long term, like if I can get customers to opt out of their three-year, multi-year, multi-million-dollar savings plan that they pay these these uh, CSPs for in advance, you know that's a massive contribution. Like I, I sometimes I feel like you know we're in 2021 and we have customers that are signing up for multi-year contracts 
Oh, I know. <laughs> back when they, back like when they were dealing with telcos, like you might as well be dealing with, you know, whatever, pick your hosting provider of choice from 10 years ago. And that's, that's the one, the, the part that I'm frustrated about the pain point, but also the opportunity that we have being kind of in a very fortunate situation to be able to impact the industry. Well, it's, it's interesting too. You brought up the, the of course, the concept as a as a mental model of first principles thinking and 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 what you're doing effectively. The reason you can make bold statements is because you can do non incremental, like real true, uh, you know, e exponential level of increase in capabilities and results. And it's funny when I look at cloud providers, like I do this all the time. You know, again, no, not to detract from any of them in what they do, but like I spin up a workload in a cloud provider. And the next morning, they're like, you get the little nurture email, like, hey, great, you're welcome aboard, you're cool. And then three days later, I get the little nurture email from the system saying, hey, you know what? If you bought a three-year reserved instance for this, you could save a lot of money. You think, ooh, 65% savings. And they're like, I've just started building this thing. You know, now an IaaS infrastructure that was long running, that had didn't have a lot of, of optimization patterns and opportunities, it did sort of make sense, but that's the consumer experience right now. And then you go to, you run Kubernetes, you've got this whole octopus of architecture and how do you possibly make sure you're doing the right thing to, you know, find that optimal, you know, packing. Like I, I'm with you. I want to be greedy in how I pack that thing. I want to find the edges because I want to make sure that I'm not getting buried on cost. Cause it's very easy to just like, all right, take your best guess add 50%. And then the engineer beside you says, you better add another 50 just in case. And that's how we do our provisioning. And, and it's primarily guesswork. And if anything, it's slightly educated guesswork. And, and that, Eric, you brought up a really good point on that kind of first experience. One of the first features we built in CAST is the ability to pause your cluster on schedule. Like, so just like when I go home, do I need this thing running? No, like I just want it running up in the morning when, when I get to the office or when I start working on my code. So like very early on, we realized people are just wasting a ton of money in their dev test environments because they're forget or just too lazy. Because look, if you if you have a cluster like Kubernetes, that's multiple machines that are all that work together, how are you gonna suspend those machines? It's just like a pain, right? So we. Yeah. We created this very easy process to look, suspend the whole thing. I'll be back to you when I get back to work, just bring it back up. Uh, it was really a convenience feature for us because we're running on our own clusters. I could definitely use that. I had to create some, uh, I, it was a lot of fun. I created the whole project of like doing a Terraform build for EKS. And I even got asked by my internal, like but really smart people at my company that they're like, they're all in on Kubernetes and they're doing EKS. They're like, it's already managed. It's already easy. I'm like, no, no. If you're trying to stand it up and then tear it down, like there's all sorts of cruft that gets left behind. How many times have you gone in, especially to AWS is my first example, is like you go in and all you see is security groups and it's named launch group 48. And you're like, I have no idea what this even came from. So like, because I had to go and like describe it through Terraform was the, my, my choice at the time. Like, all right, cool. So it stands everything up, dynamically discovers security groups, does all this stuff. And then when I'm done, you know, deprovision the whole kit, you know, but, you know, I, I did a lot of hard yards to figure out and it was more of an experiment to make sure that I could do it versus, you know, if I'm thinking about running this at scale, that would not be the one, the way I run a production environment at scale. Yeah. 
And EKS has come a long way and uh, certainly not the most usable Kates environment in the world. It, it, it has an amazing following. They've done a good job with the command line. The EKS CTL is like a right. pretty good tool. But still, like if you've ever tried to get a cube config file out of your EKS cluster, good luck. Like it's like a good <laughs> ten page. You know, that, I'm exaggerating, but it's 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 a it's a half an hour sit down if you haven't done it before. Yeah, it's it's not. Uh, I mean, and it's the. I always try to. I give them the benefit of the doubts that their problem they're solving is very different in in, and so that's not necessarily the first experience that they need to solve for. And and I'm I'm happy that I got a I got a friend on the inside, Michael Hausenblas, who's a, a fantastic uh, fellow who's been working throughout OpenStack and containerization. He was at Red Hat for a while, and uh, now he's over at Open Source at, at AWS. And so I'm hoping that you know, I got Michael on the inside. He's going to do some more to make some of their uh, their containerization a little bit easier. I like look Firecracker VM, which is the kind of open source uh, container runtime, is fantastic, right? Like it, it is a a great piece of open source tooling. And also like when I was at Oracle, I met a lot because same same city, Seattle, like buildings apart from one another. Uh, I met a lot of great AWS folks. And this is where kind of the, some of my thinking on first principles crystallized because I kind of experienced for the first time kind of a meeting where you would read for the first 10 minutes and I'm like, can people seriously not do their homework in advance yeah. <laughs> read the document? But I, I kind of uh, hated it at first. But And then I got to understand the, the why behind some of the structure. Um, and I, I really have grown to appreciate the, the way that first principles are, are considered um, at AWS and you know, other important infrastructure companies. Yeah. Well, it's, it's funny because we... It's not a default, you know, and in fact, it's very anti-pattern to how most people, I mean, the first thing they think is someone will say something and they're immediately building the reaction in their head and waiting for their opportunity to react. And versus if you have the very mindful opening, you know, and and it's it's weird, like you said, when you're sitting there and everybody's reading, you're like, this is kind of uncomfortable, but then you get used to what the output is. You have very good discussions. They, they learn about resolution they learn about decision making and the fact that you're thinking about the the final experience at the onset really makes you think about how you're going to get there and it changes the pattern of the thing. And it's funny like first principles a great example too is was elon musk uh you know an often pulled quote that he had or it's like an interview he had talked about first principles in batteries says everybody told me that there's nothing you can do in this space like batteries cost what batteries cost it's it's physics, it's engineering, there's nothing you can do about it. He's like, it costs $600 a kilowatt hour in order to manufacture battery. And he's like, but I'm buried in a first principles thinking mindset, he says. So I immediately just tore apart what it exactly takes to make a battery. And I looked around the world at different ways we can get suppliers for it. And, and it effectively came down to a handful of dollars for a kilowatt hour. He's like, why is it that nobody's able to take that on? It's because we as humans are not built to make that leap or we're more afraid, I guess, perhaps of, of taking the chance that that leap can be made. Yeah. It's the five wise principle. Like if you ask, why is it humanly impossible? You're going to get to at least one level deeper. Right. And then you just keep probing. So I, a great example. It's uh, I mean, I look at how products are built today versus how they were built like 15, 20 years ago. It's just 
such a world of difference. Like we've literally come from the Stone Ages. <laughs> so. Yep. And I often wonder, I mean, you and I are around the same age, so we've we've really seen a lot. And I remember like when I came into this, I was started going into, I came out of school and I was going to like Linux user groups. And it was me and like this like 22-year-old kid with a bunch of gray beards, you know, and I was, but I worked at a company, I worked at Sun Life Financial and, and you know, as anybody who goes to my LinkedIn, they would see it, right? It's, and here I am in a mainframe-centric environment and we were all token ring. And like, it was all this old school technology that people would laugh about. But I'm like, this is a multi-billion dollar organization that's wrapped around these technologies. Has since then have gone through incredible changes in the organization. But so my exposure was hang around with the historians and learn what they went through to get to here. And then now what I went through, my own history, going to distributed, going to cloud, going to containerization, OpenStack, all these different things, I have a great appreciation for the leaps that need to be made in jumping from one platform to another. And I wonder, you know, like, so think about it, if you, if Leon goes to school today and takes the same program you've got, you know, would you have the same appreciation being born in a world where you can go to the cloud and get it now. <laughs> I, that's a good, that's a good point Eric. And like, I'll give you, I just had a conversation with our architect. He was describing K8 to a technology user, but wasn't necessarily a Kubernetes user. And he kind of described this and he goes, oh, so you basically it's distributed mainframes where you order chunks of compute to do a, jo a job and you get a result. Like, yeah, I mean, I think we've, there are certain concepts that are evergreen. They, they come first. Full circle, right? But just to go back to your question on would the education be the same? I, like, I think like I'm most thankful for my computer science education in the aspects that were deeply rooted in distributed system concepts, compiler concepts, uh, operating system. Like, how how does an operating system work? How does swap memory work? Like, how does a disk partition work? Like, those core concepts are. Um, like those are the ones that I chair because I can always go back to them. Like no matter how complex the the problem is in today's modern uh, architecture, you can always go back to those first understandings of how computers work and kind of work your way back. So I hope and I think that part of today's computer science education is very similar to what we would have gone through or what I would have gone through. Um, there are certainly add-ons and aspects that we never had an opportunity to kind of engage with. Yeah, as so we were going through and learning about like X25 and different like communication protocols that are long gone, but like it's the it's the foundations that we were learning that ultimately yeah. played out. Like, like, do you think students today learn PDP11 assembler and on on like an emulator? Probably not. But man that was it was very valuable to understand how a machine worked at that kind of low level one thing that's funny that when you especially when you get out and you experience like how you know the technology that you learned about and then you see the world in practice especially at an enterprise level you realize like you come in and you're all like all right this is cool you know we're going to go all towards this amazing new thing and they say like okay uh, you're you're excited kid don't worry that'll wear off <laughs> now i like that there really is an embrace of new thinking in the enterprise. And in fact, I would bet that most banks have more developers than most technology companies. Yeah, 
hundred percent. It's it's real. The evolution is uh, unbelievable, and I, I'm excited to see what what comes next. It's it's uh, as as the industry. So you know, our problem right now isn't really a shortage of technology. It's a shortage of really smart people that want to get into computer science and and cybersecurity and all of the adjacent fields. So we really have to do a much better job of attracting brilliant minds to the field because we, 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 our limit right now is who we can attract to solve these very tough problems in the future. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting too, because I, especially cybersecurity, you know, if, if I look at an area that's number one underrepresented in general, you know, people with a skill set, and then within it, underrepresentation, you know, as far as general diversity, it's, it's a, it's a real struggling area. And the hard part, I think, is the patience of humans that we see like, hey, you know, we need more people in security. Perfect. So we, we say this is a problem. We create programs around it. It's going to take effectively a generation to realize that cohort. And it's tough because we kind of have the problem now. But I think access to information, and, and I'm curious in your thoughts on this, like compared today's access to rapid information, you know, if you wanted to do something for your own personal learning journey 10 years ago, 20 years ago, you know, it was, it was very different versus now I think people can can get there faster. And I think hopefully that we've got the right ecosystem to allow them to do that. Yeah, like, like my first machine learning course back years ago was uh, Andrew Ng, like the Stanford 101 course, which is like on Coursera, fantastic. Like would have never been able to go through that type of rigorous learning process um, unless I was back at school, right? And most yeah. people can't, can't afford to do that. Yeah, you hear the stories of like the, you know, the the Steve Jobses of the world and Kevin Mitnick's, you always know, read their early biographies and it's all this thing of like, I was having to go to the university to get like one hour at four in the morning on a Thursday night is the only time I could get compute time. And you're like, wow, this is so we've got so much access. It's it's very much democratized and commoditized. It's still not free, but very accessible. Uh, and there's lots of places to go, you know, to find a peer group that have also walked the walk with you versus, you know, back then first principles was really big first principles because it had never existed to do this in a computing platform. It was very manual. Yeah. And I'll, I'll just on the support groups, like we've been spending a lot of time with like, uh, with Kubernetes uh, uh, meetups and cloud native meetups. I got to tell you that some of the deep questions that are coming out of those interactions are unbelievable. Like people really want to get to the bottom. And then they also have tremendous insight that like, uh, like I was expecting some good, good validation and uh, some great questions. But then I, what the benefit that we got out of it was ideas were coming out of these groups. Like, hey, have you thought about the problem in this way or um, the pain the the pain that you should really think about is this problem because here's my example. So, uh, like I'm all in on these meetups. I think, especially with with this virtualization through COVID, um, they've become so valuable for engineers to exchange ideas. Yeah, I've I've been amazed by the new people I've met and very much stayed close to through those meetups. Like, I ended up discovering. 
you know, through, I think it was like a Google meetup for Kubernetes in, you know, and I presented, uh, you know, at one of them and I met this fellow named Archie, uh, who he was, he worked for a company called Cloud Ops in Montreal and, and he, they were from Montreal coming over to here to Toronto to do it. And I was like, oh, that's really cool. And then we kept in touch, you know, worked more with the Cloud Ops folks and then ultimately met another person. And through this ecosystem now, we've legitimately you know, done commercial business together and stayed very close personally that helped me in the learning journey for a lot of things. And I think that's what I hope that we can introduce new people to is that if you're fresh out of school or you're still in school, there's so much more access to a peer community that can really, really like effectively kind of 10x your learning capabilities because you you have someone to lean on versus having to hope that you can find it in a book. How is the tech scene in Montreal? Is that it seems like I'm hearing more and more kind of startup stories coming out of uh, that part of the country. It's pretty cool. Yeah, it used to be Toronto. It, it is. It, it is always funny to see, like you know, of course, the Canadian startup scene not not well known. Uh, you know, uh, although it was kind of interesting to see the other day when I saw BlackBerry suddenly get a, a huge bump on the stock. <laughs> you know, people were like, "Wait a second, BlackBerry is still a thing." Um, but yeah, Montreal. Uh, definitely uh, a good amount of technologists that are there. The challenge with Montreal and and anywhere in Quebec, of course, is the language uh, difference. You know, so in Quebec, of course, they they need to be fully bilingual. Uh, if you work for any government agency, uh, so I've got I've got kids and and my my older kids are fully bilingual. I make sure to to do that to kind of open up the doors for them. But yeah, I mean, I'm interested. When I started. You know, my belief was I would never work for a startup in Toronto because like my hope, I'm like, I can become an architect. I was a systems architect, you know, at Sun Life and Manulife and Raymond James. I, I did all, I thought that was my world, wherever it's somewhere on the subway line in the financial district, but the the world opened up, you know, it was always open. I just didn't go digging for it. Like, so now all of a sudden I was working for a Boston based company remotely. And, you know, and, and since then I've now moved to the U.S., but, you know, it's funny looking at your history. I'm curious, you know, you've worked for a lot of West Coast technology firms for a long time. You know, what made you make the jump from from Toronto to to head to that way? And, and how much of it was done from Toronto versus you having to actually be there? So we moved um, to the West Coast for, for in 2007. And it was really... Uh, like there was a there was a job opportunity, but I really wanted to experience like sunshine and ocean weather, and, and we didn't know if we'd like Los Angeles or not as a place to live. But what was interesting with this COVID thing that happened this summer was the spring and the summer. As I was leaving Oracle, my wife and I were walking in uh, San Fernando Valley for a daily walk, and uh, she's like, "You know, I'm worried about our parents with this COVID thing." Uh, we got a lot of family in Toronto. What if we're not? What if something happens? What if we're not going to be able to see them again? And I'm like, you know what? You're right. My folks, your folks, grandparents, you know, kids uh, deserve to to be with their grandparents too. And what if this is a fleeting opportunity? So we actually moved back. We, oh wow! It was a very unusual thing, and like we didn't know there would be this crazy spike in Los Angeles, but we picked up in the middle of COVID, uh, hired a big moving company, and hauled all the way back to Toronto. Now, having experienced this winter, I'm not sure that <laughs> I want to be here in February next year, but maybe that's just a month or two out of the year that we're not here. 
Um, you, you try it. You just sort of muscle through it. It's uh, you know, I I I'll I'll put you right in the middle. It, I mean, obviously, you family reasons, and that's actually why I ended up coming back to Toronto. I lived in Vancouver for six years, and uh, you know, if you're if you like lifestyle and you use the lifestyle, it's a fantastic place to live. Uh, and especially now with remote working opportunities, I think it'd be very cool. Uh, it was hard to find a local job for many people, especially entry level stuff. I came as a senior from Toronto. So when I would go there, they'd be like, oh, we've got a pretty big environment. It's it's like about 75 servers. I'm like, I've got more DNS servers than that. So uh, <laughs> that I managed. So, yeah, I think we're good to go on the scale. <laughs> You know what's interesting about Vancouver? I think a lot of U.S. West Coast companies are using Vancouver as a staging ground because of the lack of H-1B visas, which is a political problem. But like, hey, you're on the same time zone. You're, yeah. you know, you're within three hours drive of Seattle. There's a pretty good synergy, uh, and I think a lot of folks are using Vancouver. And I think it might has a really strong chance of evolving into its own very strong tech community over time if that pattern continues. I do hope so. It's such a beautiful city and just amazing people there. It's such a, I, I really do enjoy the West Coast sort of mentality there. And, and I was happy to be there. I came back for for family reasons, kind of similar to, to your situation. It was like, okay, well, you know, you 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 do the right thing, you know, for for family at the time. I definitely don't don't take any negative from, from having done it, but uh, yeah, beautiful opportunity. Funny, Blaine, Washington is always my favorite little, little tiny spot just on the, on the other side of the border, the most mailboxes per capita, because it's mostly people from Vancouver who drive down and, and get stuff shipped to, <laughs> to us addresses a little bit different now because you can get more stuff shipped internationally. But uh, that used to be a big thing when I was there. Yeah. yeah like, look, I mean, even today, like the, the, Cana the, the Canadian system has a lot of benefits, but I'll tell you, like, just getting things here, <laughs> if you're used to Amazon Prime, oh, one yeah. hour, you get whatever you want. It's a little bit of a different consumer experience, right? Yeah, Amazon now is like Amazon sometime fairly soon in Canada. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, absolutely. It's just a suggestion. Now, so definitely, yeah, and this has been really cool. I've I've, I've enjoyed that we can explore a lot. Um, for folks that want to dig in a bit further on on Cast AI, obviously we'll have links to to the site. Uh, and and what's your what's the best way if they want to reach out to you? As you really, uh, we covered a lot of ground, both technically and and business wise. So you've you've got a a lot of information, and, and I thank you for sharing it all. Oh, you're very welcome. It was a lot of fun. You can just hit me up on LinkedIn. That's the only social network that I use. I'm not on Twitter, Facebook, or uh, I guess Clubhouse now counts because I've, I've tried it. <laughs> we're, we're all going to be there. I, I joke with people that say, like, I'm on Clubhouse, but .io. I'm on the real yeah. club. Like, I'm over that on Clubhouse too, but uh, yeah. So yeah, just, uh, just hit me up on LinkedIn. Um, and also on Cast, if you want to give it a try, uh, and you want to actually experience what a multi-cloud simultaneous application. We have a demo app, like it's a boutique app that you can deploy on two or three clouds. Uh, one of the things that we're doing is if customers sign up and you just want to try it, but you don't want to use your AWS or Google credentials, just hit us up on Slack and we'll uh, enter credentials into your account on your behalf so that you can actually spin up a cluster at no cost on our dime, basically. Try it out. It's a 48-hour thing and then uh, spin it down once you've experienced it. So I in, encourage uh, folks to try it. It's a really fun experience when, when you, you get the front door entry to a cluster that's actually distributed across clouds. It's a, it's a lot of fun. 
That's cool. Yeah. And, and also it's a, it's such a beautiful customer focused and customer centric thing. Like if you can't get it, then we'll put it in your hands anyways. So it's uh, it's nice to see that's happening because it's, it is tough. You know, when, when you tell people like this is possible, then the first thing they think is like, Oh, I've got to set up. I am principles and Azure principles and all this craziness. Like, Oh, well, we can make it a little bit easier for you. So to, to mm-hmm. kick the nice. Yeah. We, we've got some really interesting stuff coming down. That's um, uh, one of the things we realized is customers want to step step into the experience a little bit more gradually. So we have a, a read-only agent that's going to be coming out soon where you can just install it on an existing cluster. We'll gather a lot of information. We'll give you a report of what's possible, what's not possible. So there's a lot of cool things coming kind of on the onboarding space uh, to make it a lot. The other thing that we realized is that customers are pretty happy with their managed service provider and trusting a young company is another friction point. So we're just going to meet customers where they are. Like if you want the first experience with Cast, you can install it on your existing case cluster. You're not going to get all of the multi-cloud benefits, but you will get a lot of the advantages and then you can start rolling from there. So Very cool. Eric, th- thank you so much. This was a lot of fun. Great questions. Um, and I listened to your uh, discussion with Thomas. who Oh, nice. Yeah. On Celium. Just a plug. We also install Celium in our clusters as a default. Nice. <laughs> so way faster than those other guys. So, yeah, well, that's so, always the that I I I feel I, I feel the pain of that. You know, having deployed a lot of different service meshes and network meshes, like oh, good golly, you know. And uh, so yeah, I Thomas was really cool to uh, to chat with, and I've got some, a lot of good friends that are working over it. That's it. A lot of good friends that work over at Isovalent. There's a small group of people, and I've been lucky enough to be friends with most of them. So it's uh, uh, it was really cool. Awesome, well, Leanne, mm-hmm. thank you very much. And like I said, we'll make sure we send people over. I know for sure I'm going to be uh, kicking the tires on the platform a bit more aggressively myself. Sadly, I. I had a busy last uh, couple of weeks, so I didn't get a chance to to run in advance of our chat, but uh, you've definitely excited me about why I should do it. Yeah, kick the tires. The, the biggest thing that we would love to hear is just people's raw feedback. So um, the, this is why we've made the platform so open. The more folks we can have uh, on the platform, the better it's going to be over time. I love it. Excellent. Well, thank you very much, well, Leon. Thanks. Thanks, Eric. Hey, still here? I hope so. I've always wondered if people listen to the end. If so, make sure you go check out DiabolicalCoffee.com and put in Disco Posse. You'll get yourself a special deal, some wicked cool coffee, devilishly good coffee, and a devilishly and diabolically great swag. So go to DiabolicalCoffee.com and check it out. Thanks for listening. 